This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Since March, four infants have died at separate home daycares. According to the Hartford Current, the latest case was just last Wednesday in Norwalk. It's unsettling any time a child dies. What should parents know about choosing a daycare provider? We want you to join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're going to talk about child care here in Connecticut later in the show. We'll take a snapshot of what's happening around the country and around the world in terms of providing uh, child care and paid leave options for families. Uh, before we get to that, though, I did want to speak about uh, what's happening here uh, with child care and daycare options. So in studio with me is Linda Goodman. She's acting commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood and Deborah Johnson, who's division of licensing director at the same state agency. Linda and Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I started off the show just mentioning um, these uh, these cases. I'm I'm curious, um, as acting commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood, when um, these cases happen, you know, what is the role of your office? The role of our office is primarily through our licensing division. Um, when they are notified that there's an incident, um, they in, begin an investigation. Um, we often work in conjunction with the Department of Children and Families and local police or state police. Um, and in terms of uh, subsequent enforcement actions, we work with the, off- the Attorney General's office. So can you give us an idea of how many uh, daycare providers there are in the state that are licensed? I'll turn to you, Deborah. There's we, we license in three different categories. Uh, fam- family child care homes, there's approximately 2,100 Group child care homes, there's approximately 31, and they serve from 7 to 12 children. And child care centers, there's approximately 1,400, and they serve over 12 children. The family child care homes serve six children with three children that may attend before and after school, school school-age children. And Commissioner Goodman mentioned um, licensing. So walk us through that, um, because obviously many of us uh, listening uh, to the show, uh, even myself, we, we have kids. We have to depend on daycare. So how do you make that decision in terms of you know who, who do you go to? So can we walk us through the licensing process first? Sure. The, if someone wants to become licensed, they have to submit a written application to the office and then submit required information such as they, uh, for the family child care homes, they need to pass background checks on the provider and all the household members. They need medical statements. They have to pass a pre-licensure inspection where staff of our office would go out to the home and inspect the physical plant to make sure it's safe for children. And they need to show proof of first aid certification. In regards to the child care centers and group child care homes, they also have to submit an application application and background checks. They also, in addition, have to obtain approval from local authorities, um, obtain verification that they have consultants to support their program. They, too, pass a pre-licensure inspection where we go out and and look at the physical plant, and they also have to show proof that staff are trained in first aid and CPR. Now, the Office of Early Childhood has not been around for a long time. It was at the Department of Public Health that used to license daycare. Um, why was there a shift, Deborah, a change? The state decided that it would be a good idea to bring together most all of the early childhood programs in Connecticut. So 
um, beginning in 2013 and then formalized in 2014. We transferred programs from five different state agencies uh, to bring them together so that we have better integration. Um, Deb's folks regularly speak to our early care and education folks. Um, She's been very involved in new uh, regulations um, under the Child Care Development Fund um, that have more stringent uh, quality requirements. So it's been a a great coming together of a whole lot of people who were very passionate about early childhood. And so it's the um, staff within the Office of Early Childhood that carries out these inspections of, of daycares? Yes, yes. Once a program is licensed, it receives at least one unannounced inspection per year. And this is really a huge enhancement for our licensing program. Previously, licensed programs were only inspected every two to three years. And now we're getting out there um, at least annually to inspect. Um, And one of the first things we do when our staff enter a facility is we walk through the entire premise, verify that they are not exceeding the number of children they they should have, and look at ratios of staff to children. Um, Then we go through the entire facility, look at records, um, the physical plant, staffing, um, policies, procedures, all sorts of things. Um, If there are violations, um, the program needs to submit a corrective action plan, which corrects the violation. Um, If any of the violations were significant violations, such as capacity or supervision or using staff, unapproved staff, then we may go out and do a follow-up inspection, which would be in addition to the initial inspection. So it sounds like if there is an issue, say um, cabinets are not locked and there are young children or if there's a uh, cleaning product out, it's not as if an inspector comes in and says, oh, this this should be under lock and key, you're going to lose your license. There's a process in place to, for people to correct that issue. Exactly. Um, the ultimate goal of licensing is just to keep the children healthy and safe. Um, licensing sets out those basic health and safety requirements And uh, we are there to support programs, check on programs, make sure they're meeting those basic requirements so kids are kept safe. And how often are providers found out of compliance or where they have have an issue that they need to correct? Um, It's generally during a visit we may find some minor violations and the programs submit something in writing and verify they've corrected it and that is the end of it. Um, And hopefully going forward we won't see those same violations again. There are times where there's more serious violations, um, more times or less times than not, more times than not, um, where we will address them in a more aggressive fashion. Um, We may ask, um, we might have additional visits. We may um, issue, um, ask that they come in for a meeting. We may negotiate a consent order where they might have to do things above and beyond what's normally required in the regulations to ensure that the kids are safe. I'm speaking with Deborah Johnson. She's Division of Licensing Director of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. She's here in studio with the Acting Commissioner of the State Department, Linda Goodman. We're looking at the the choices of child care and how you make the right decision. If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We heard about licensing. Um, Obviously, there are some states in this country that don't have such uh, strict licensing requirements. So that's one uh, plus here in Connecticut. We're going to hear more later in the show about how Connecticut... uh, child care uh, stacks up against other states. Uh, But for parents that are listening who may have children um, at a daycare facility or at a home daycare, what is the best way for them to make the right decision? I'll turn to the acting commissioner, Linda Goodman. 
I think that the uh, first step for a parent, particularly if they're looking for child care, um, is to go to the 211 Child Care website, which is www.211childcare.org. Uh, it works great from phones. Uh, it works great on your computer. Um, it allows you to search for child care. You can tell it um, whether you're looking for a center or you're looking for a family child care home, uh, the age of your child. Um, you can plug in your address and tell it you want to look anywhere from one mile to ten miles from your home or, or place of work. Um, and then it will show you the uh, names and addresses of various centers or family child care homes. Um, for the centers, it will tell you if that center is nationally accredited. Um, the National Association for the Education of Young Children accredits child care centers. Um, it will also tell you um, what school district uh, the, the center is in, uh, the languages that are spoken, whether they have experience with special needs, um, what the fees are um, when it was first established. The thing that it currently does not tell you um, is anything about the center's license. We are working uh, over the next several months to bring that information from our um, e-licensing software over to the 211 website. But in the meantime, a parent can go to the OEC's website, which is www.ct.gov forward slash OEC, click on licensing, then you'll see uh, a place to click that says to check if a program um, or youth camp is licensed. Click on that. Um, click on the online lookup tool, and that brings you to e-licensing. So e-licensing is a statewide licensing software that, that includes licenses on anybody who's licensed in the state of Connecticut for anything. Plumbers and real estate agents and contractors, they're all in there, but there are also child care centers and family child care homes in there. So when you're on that site, you tell the site what kind of license you're looking for, and you want to say uh, child care center or, ch or child care family home. Um, you can put in the name of the center you're, look you're interested in. Uh, you can just put in a town if you don't know the, the exact name, and it will bring up all of the uh, centers or family homes in that town. Um, when you click on one of them, it will give you the licensing history. Um, if they're not there, then they're not licensed. But if they are licensed, it'll give you the history. It tells you when all of the last unannounced inspections were. If there are substantiated complaints um, and you scroll down a little further on the screen, you'll see the history of the complaints, um, how they were resolved, and there's also a uh, link to the licensing regulations. So if the complaint is citing a particular regulation, you can look that up. So, uh, Deborah, I'll turn back to you. So uh, obviously a lot of good information online about how to choose a daycare provider. But if someone's already um, has a child at a daycare center, already um, at a home daycare, what should they be asking of their daycare provider? Sure. It is definitely important to, as Linda said, especially in the beginning, make sure the license, the program is licensed. Um, I think it's important that parents have open communication and dialogue with their providers. Ask questions. If you don't feel comfortable asking questions, that might be an indicator that this might not be an appropriate fit. You should feel very comfortable talking to your provider. 
there's nothing wrong now that you know that um, programs are inspected every year to ask the program for a copy of their most recent inspection and talk through if something was violated. Ask the provider how did they correct it. Have that open dialogue. Um, don't be afraid to visit the program when it is operating. Pop in unexpectedly. You should be allowed to do that. Watch the children interact with the staff and talk with the staff. Um, build a relationship with them. Become a part of um, the program. I've been speaking with Deborah Johnson, Division of Licensing Director at the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood, and Linda Goodman, Acting Commissioner of the State Department. Uh, they were here to give tips to parents about the best way to find daycare and child care options in the state of Connecticut. I want to thank you both for coming in today. Thank you. When you find the right child care setting, the next struggle can be how to pay for it. We'll check in with the author of a national report to see how Connecticut fares with other against other states. We'll also hear from a local advocate about the challenges families face affording daycare. How did you find child care? Has it been a struggle to pay for it? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you work, chances are you've needed child care at some point. A recent report finds Connecticut ranks high in quality of programs, and there's a lot of choices here. But like many things, quality doesn't come cheap. What does that mean for working families who already have plenty of bills to pay? I want to turn to our new guest in studio, Merrill Gay, Executive Director of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. Welcome to the show, Merrill having me. Uh, before, um, we're actually going to hear more from the author of this uh, national report on Connecticut and other states, but I wanted to speak with you about um, your work with the Alliance. I mean, who do you represent? Uh, we represent a broad coalition of the early childhood community, including providers, uh, researchers, um, local early childhood collaboratives uh, that bring together all of those providers at a local level. Um, so there are about 100 member organizations. So talk about um, the child care options. Obviously, you saw the care index report that we're going to hear about in just a little bit. Um, you know, what's your take in terms of, of the options that are available here in the state? Well, I mean, I think the big takeaway from that report and uh, is that the system really isn't working for anybody involved. It's too expensive for parents. Providers are really on a knife edge of um, sustainability. And the people who work in child care are some of the lowest paid people around. Let's talk about the costs. So for people who don't um, have children um, and have to deal with child care costs, I think looking at that report, we're talking about 28% of a household's income is going towards child care. That's, that's a big lump. Right. And it's not anything new. Um, I remember 15 years ago when my son was in preschool. Uh, he happened to be at the CCSU preschool. And uh, on a whim, I uh, called CCSU to find out how much it would cost if he was 18 instead of 3. Um, and it would actually have cost less to send him there as a freshman, as a commuter, than to send him to preschool. And that's still the situation. Um, right now in Connecticut, um, you're spending the, the average cost for uh, center-based uh, infant-toddler care is 274 bucks, um, or that's $1,187 a month. Um, that could be somebody's rent. Yes, it's and if you have you know two kids, uh, you could be spending more than two thousand bucks a month um, on childcare easily. Mm -hmm. 
And what's interesting, too, because you said it's nothing new, child care has been expensive for a long time. Um, why, when we think about the expense, that money doesn't trickle down to the people caring for our children? So the issue is that in child care, as opposed to, say, public school, we have very strict um, ratios of adults to children, as it should be, because you it's much more difficult to uh, take care of infants than it is to uh, take care of third graders. Um, so we have a 1 to 4 ratio for children under 2 and a 1 to 10 ratio for children um, under 5. And that means that um, it just that ratio you have fewer pe- fewer children whose uh, fees have to pay for the cost of the teachers. So we're going to hear more now about the CARE Index, uh, this new report uh, that came out from New America. Uh, Bridget Schulte is joining us. She's a journalist and lead author of this report, also director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at New America. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So we were listening to our guest, uh, Meryl Gay, here in Connecticut, say that the cost of child care being very expensive is nothing new. This has been a problem for years. Tell us what your CARE Index found. Well, it's true. We have known for a long time that child care is incredibly expensive for parents. Uh, What we did in our report, we really took, uh, we wanted to map out the infrastructure, if you will, of the child care system and really look at the three pillars of what you need for a child care system to really work. You need high quality, you need affordable cost for parents, uh, and also sustainable for businesses, and you need availability. If you, uh, you know, you need care for the ages of the children that you have near where you live or where you work. It needs to be available. So we came up with a methodology. We worked with our partners with Care.com. We had... um, uh, we were able to use their unique proprietary cost data. They're the largest online marketplace for cost. So it was a, it was a totally new uh, way of looking at cost that's, uh, that's very real, very market-based, if you will, not based on surveys. Uh, and so we, we came up with the methodology, and we rated each state on each of the three pillars of care, cost, quality, and availability. Uh, and the bottom line is that no one state is doing all three things well. Uh, we group the states into quartiles, if you will, uh, from top to bottom, and then we really looked, and no one state is in the top quartile for all uh, all three uh, pillars of care. Uh, Connecticut does come out very well in terms of quality and in terms of availability. We found the highest availability in northeastern states, uh, you know, where, there, where there's a lot of population. The lowest availability, probably not unsurprisingly, was in larger western states where there's a lot more rural population. But where Connecticut really uh, did not fare well uh, was in cost. It was uh, uh, it was rated number 24, so it was further down in the ratings. Uh, so the cost is incredibly expensive in, in Connecticut, as it is really uh, across the country. We found that the cost of one year of infant care in either a center or a family-based family home care center, uh, at, which tends to be a little less expensive than center-based care, one year of infant care in either of those two settings was more expensive than one year of in-state college in 33 states, Mm -hmm. and that included Connecticut. So that's an eye-opening stat right there. 
Yes. <laughs> you know, and the, the other thing is that you don't have 18 years to save up for that. Mm-hmm. I think what people don't recognize is why is it so expensive? And, I, you know, and I think there's been some discussion of this. It's bodies. You need more people to take care of smaller children, and it just costs money. Uh, and yet parents are really strapped. We were looking at uh, child care costs as a percentage of household median income and then also as a percentage of uh, minimum wage income. And in, it, nationally, what we found is that it costs, it is about, child care costs is about one-fifth of the household median income. In several states, one year of care is more than rent and mortgage costs for many people. And for those on minimum wage, uh, the cost of care, is as close is close to two thirds of the minimum wage uh, in in the country. So these are exorbitant costs for families, and yet at the same time, on the other side providers are making maybe one to two percent margins. You have a lot of mom and pop shops. You have small um, child care facilities that have sort of popped up because we've never really had a, um, we, you know, we've never really had a systemic look at, uh, you know, what is it that we're trying to build? What are we trying to create here? Uh, so they're operating on one to two percent margins. And uh, caregivers are making poverty wages. So the system really doesn't work for anyone. You know, just in, in Connecticut, uh, most most caregivers earn l- less than $10 an hour. Um, you know, in Connecticut, there was a study that we cited in our report. Um, you know, the, the you know caregivers um, earn about $10.70 uh, an hour. So it's a little higher than the national average of $9.70 an hour. Uh, but that's still 51% of the state median income. It's, it's half of what other people are making. In, in a report, we profile one teacher in, uh, Connecticut, in, sorry, in Massachusetts, and she's been an early care and learning teacher for 30 years, and she's been on food stamps the whole time. You know, about half, care, half of all caregivers uh, make so little money that they qualify for some kind of public assistance like food stamps or Medicaid. So, so we looked at the big picture of care in for everybody in the United States, and what we really concluded is that it's not a system. It's really broken. It's fragmented, uh, and it's not working well for anyone. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Bridget Schulte, a journalist and lead author of the CARE Index, director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at New America. She's joining us from the studios there in Washington, D.C. In studio with me is Meryl Gay, executive director of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. If you have a question or comment for our guests, 860-275-7266. How did you choose uh, child care? How can you afford child care with these costs? Well, you can join the conversation again at 860-275-7266. I wanted to turn back to Merrill Gay uh, here in Connecticut. Um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the expense of child care, but, you know, we can't forget the importance of why we need quality care. You know, when we think about birth to five, the formative years, um, it's important to have quality care. But what happens to the families who, you know, are, can't afford this kind of care? Well, parents turn to, out of necessity, turn to kind of the gray market, um, you know, there was once a time when it was perfectly normal for grandma to be taking care of grandchildren. Um, now, lots of grandmas are still in the workforce and aren't available. Um, so people end up turning to their neighbors. Um, and we, one of the things that those licensing inspectors uh, do is uh, check out uh, unlicensed 
situations where, I mean, it is illegal in the state to be taking care of children for pay who are not related to you without a license. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, they'll get a report saying, you know, somebody next door is uh, t- is doing that, and they'll have to come out and close them down. And we were talking about this in the context of these um, these four different cases since March here in Connecticut, um, infants at um, home daycares, so they're not accredited, they're not a daycare center, they're people that are licensed. At least I think one of the reports is one of those uh, uh, incidences that the daycare, the home daycare was not licensed. Um, so there can be a danger there. But also, um, you know, something Bridget had spoken about in terms of, you know, the people that are taking care of our children, you know, barely making ends meet. Can we talk about that from the Connecticut um, point of view? And, you know, what options are there for these child care workers? And with uh, certain regulations and, and requirements that are coming online for the kind of people that they're looking to hire now right. to work in daycare centers. So Connecticut has um, the highest level of accredited programs uh, in the state, so our quality level is real high. One of the things that we have uh, focused on in all of our subsidized programs is to try and increase the academic credentials of teachers. So by next July, um, half the teachers have to have a BA, the other half have to have an associate's degree, and by 2020, every lead teacher in a classroom is supposed to have a bachelor's degree in early childhood. Um, the problem is that programs are having real trouble attracting and retaining um, those teachers at the wage rates that they can pay. Um, the average preschool teacher is making in the neighborhood of thirty-two, thirty-three thousand dollars a year. Um, that's not a lot of money, especially if you're going into debt to earn a bachelor's degree in that specialized field. Um, and the differential between working in a preschool and working in a public school. Um, is about $20,000. So a lot of those people who may be working in a preschool for a couple of years until they can get a job in a public school. Mm. Um, So we have that um, sort of constant turnover, and that's one of the real drawbacks of a low-paid industry is turnover. We know that children do best when they have consistent caregiving relationships. and so that that is a, a real problem. Uh, Bridget Schulte, um, is there something that you can add to that about you know the you know having certain requirements for people to work in daycare centers, but you know that's not an easy thing to achieve as well. Well, one of the things that we that we uh, noted in the report is that a number of states are moving toward uh, requiring uh, bachelor's degrees or or higher degrees for caregivers. Um, the The data is really um, it's really mixed on whether that adds to quality or not. But the important thing about that kind of effort is to professionalize that force to recognize that this is not just babysitting. This really is teaching. This is early care and learning. Uh, you know, it's really clear. The the brain science is so clear. When you look at what happens zero to five, the brain is growing at the fastest rate ever in our lives. Every second between something like 700 and 1,000 new neural connections are being made. And it's really important that uh, all children are uh, have access to uh, rich language and, you know, language that's being taught, you know, talking to them constantly from somebody who's 
memorable to them, somebody who has a connection like a parent, uh, you know, a sibling or, uh, you know, a consistent caregiver, somebody that you've developed a relationship with. Uh, and I think why we really need to look at that, and one of the things we called for in our report is, you know, we really can't continue to expect to uh, to sort of fund this early care and learning system that everyone requires. We have a majority of children who are being raised in families where all parents work, either dual income families or single uh, single parents. You know, the world has changed in the last several decades, and yet we've got a system that's still very geared toward kind of the 1950s, if you will, you know, kind of like a lot of, um, you know, mother's mom's day out kind of programs that end at, you know, a couple hours in the morning. It's, we really have not built the kind of infrastructure that we really need. And as a result, if you look at, say, the academic achievement gap, uh, you know, between, it's largely along, along social, socioeconomic lines, uh, there's, there's research that shows that the majority of that academic achievement gap is actually present the very first day of kindergarten. So that those zero to five years are really critical when we're looking toward the future of our country, of uh, equal opportunity for all kids, uh, and that uh, and that having that bond with uh, with a loving and uh, uh, and well trained caregiver is a really big part of that. Um, right now, uh, you know, say in the states that have required that that kind of bachelor's degree, what you have is teachers have gone out and gotten the bachelor's degree, they come back, and they're still earning these poverty wages, only now they have additional student debt on top of it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about child care, how you find it, and uh, how you can afford it. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to go to the phones. Liz is calling from Avon. Liz, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thanks very much for taking my call. I'm so happy you guys are covering this topic, and I thank you for looking into our broken system. I can experience that. I've experienced that firsthand. I'm a single mom of four young children. Um, when I got divorced, I had to reenter the workforce after being out for over 12 years. So I was coming back in making poverty wages myself and finding that all of my income was going to pay for childcare. And and like you said, it's a lot of the childcare is it's not suitable to your to your work schedule, whatever that might be. So you're really um, in a bind. And I've found that, you know, my, my only, my saving grace was going through the au pair programs that are out there and bringing these au pairs over from Europe. And, you know, all of a sudden I had somebody in my home, another adult with, you know, who was there. And if, if there was ever an emergency, they were flexible. They lived with me. Um, my kids came to love them and um, know, knew them very intimately. We're still in touch with them. Um, but then in, do, in, in bringing these au pairs over, I really then got a much deeper understanding of how broken our system is when you hear from these girls from Finland, from Germany, from France even, how um, they're, they're astounded, not only forget about health care, but our child care. In Finland, they have state-sponsored child care. That, so that, that there is there is not this huge burden placed on families. And when you consider, you know, the the argument against Europe is, oh, well, they pay more in taxes. Well, but but how can you say that that's a bad thing when we're taking care of our country or taking care of the future of our country? Um, and if you don't do that, we're not going to have a very great country down the road. 
Well, thank you, Liz, for sharing some of your story, um, some good points there. I wanted to turn back to Merrill Gay. Uh, for people who I wanted to speak about subsidized programs, for people who can't afford you know, to have nannies or to find some flexibility, what then? Well, that's where the Care for Kids Child Care Subsidy Program is supposed to um, fill the gap. Unfortunately, um, Connecticut's program is now closed as of August 1st. Uh, can't get a child care subsidy because um, a number of uh, relatively good changes came down from the federal government, but that increased the state's cost. Um, so we currently have a record number of children on the Care for Kids program, but it is closed to all new families uh, except for those exiting uh, the TANF system. Um, have you been hearing from a lot of these families that have been closed out? What do they do? Um, they're really up a creek without a paddle. Um, if you're a minimum wage worker, um, you can't possibly afford to pay the market rate for child care, um, but you need child care in order to work. So you have to turn to the to family or the gray market. We're getting a few tweets into the show. Uh, another uh, listener, child care for me costs as much as my mortgage. I'm not sure how low-income families make it worth make it work, rather. Another costs less to send a freshman to Central Connecticut State University than to send a toddler to preschool. And Ryan tweets, I'm seriously contemplating self-employment stay at home because it will pay better than working full-time and sending daughter to child care. I wanted to turn back to Bridget Schulte. She's down in uh, Washington, D.C., the uh, better, director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at New America. She's the lead author of the Care Index. So, Bridget, we know the system is fragmented. There's a lot of problems. What are some solutions? Um, well, uh, the system is fragmented, and I just want to say, you know, it's it's a problem not just for those at the the lowest end of the socioeconomic spectrum, although it is a critical problem for them. It's a problem for everyone. Uh, just like one of the one of your your callers, uh, we profile a family who are paying more than their mortgage, thirty four thousand dollars a year for two kids. Uh, uh, you know, it's just it's a burden for everyone. Six, parents. Uh, pay 60% of the cost of child care in this country. The government pays about 39% based on, and that's largely through the subsidized program, and businesses pay maybe 1%. Uh, you know, for a while, people thought on-site child care would be the answer or a great solution, uh, but the, actually, there's only 7% of all companies that offer on-site child care, and that's down from 9% a few years ago. So very few business solutions, if you will. Uh, businesses only spend about 2%. There's only 2% of businesses who actually invest any of their own money into child care. So we're really focusing on, uh, you know, it's a broken system uh, that's basically subsidized by uh, poverty wages for caregivers and strapped parents. Uh, so the solutions are really to uh, to look at and look at this as investment. If you look at, uh, say, K through 12 education, uh, you know, we subsidize that. We think of that as an investment in the future in, the, in society. The cost to educate one child is about $12,000 a year on average. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, the costs, as we show, are about $9,000 in the zero to five range, and we expect parents to cover the entire cost of that. So, you know, in terms of big picture solutions, we really need to have everyone come to the table. One of the reasons why Liz mentioned, you know, looking at Europe, the United States is the only advanced economy that does not have a paid family leave program. And many other countries look at paid family leave as infant care. That's how they take care of their infants, is they 
they make sure that the parents are there, that they can afford to be there for, you know, in some cases, as much as uh, like in Iceland, uh, it's nine months, three months for the mom, three months for the dad, and three months for the family to share. So in those really critical years where the baby can't even sit up and you need to be very careful and, uh, you know, put the baby to sleep on the back where you have a lot of some of the infant deaths, you know, the very tragic deaths in the unlicensed care, uh, the parents are the ones that are taking care of them. Uh, so we, what we really call for is having uh, having everyone come to the table. In the United States, we also took a very different tack. Back in the early 1970s, there actually was an effort that passed both houses of Congress. It was a bipartisan bill that would have created a national infrastructure of high-quality, affordable care for everybody on a sliding scale, depending upon your income. Uh, and that was vetoed at the time, likened to communism, you know, that this was sort of a terrible, terrible way to go, that uh, babies really belonged home with their moms. It was a, 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 and at the time, the argument was made, well, this is a private responsibility, not a public one. And in our report, we're really questioning that and saying, now it's time to come back to the table and say, you know, is this really something that should remain a private responsibility or is this something that we all should should invest in and take take responsibility for. And we're going to talk about paid leave um, after we come back from the break. But, uh, Meryl, did you want to add something before we go to a quick call? I actually want to talk about paid leave. So let's oh, okay. <laughs> so let me take a call now. Josh is calling from Hartford. Josh, you're on the show. Hi. I'm a child protection lawyer. I work for the Public Defender's Office in Connecticut. And one of the other consequences that's worth mentioning here, especially for poor parents, is that when they're trapped between losing a job and getting child care, they're forced to settle for sometimes what they know is suboptimal childcare from a relative who they know is drinking or from a teenager who isn't so responsible. And when something goes wrong, the Department of Children and Families will hold that parent responsible. It doesn't matter. They have no other options. So I see often that this is a way that families get involved with child protection services really for a lack of resources to get good childcare. Well, that sounds like a shame when that happens. Meryl Gay, did you want to um, add to Josh's point? Well, that's you know sort of uh, the ongoing effort to criminalize poverty in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lots of places where um, poor people get involved with the law simply because they don't have any other options to, mm-hmm. but to do something that's sort of on the margins. So what can our General Assembly do? I know um, we're talking about, we mentioned paid leave. I know there is there has been a study the last couple of years of something called a paid leave fund. So it would be half of 1% that would come out of a person's paycheck, but the business uh, community is lobbying against that. Right. It would create a system, essentially an employee-funded um, paid family leave system of 12 weeks. Um, I wanted to point out that um, in this country, in 25 states, it's illegal to take a puppy from its mother before seven or eight weeks. And yet one out of four working women returns to work within two weeks. Um, that's We recognize the problem for dogs, but we don't recognize the problem for children. Um, what's wrong with this picture? Well, I want to leave at you at that point. Uh, Meryl Gay is executive director of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. Um, you can stick around for the next break because when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bridget. We're going to shift to the policy that relates to child care, what we've just mentioned, paid family leave. The U.S. doesn't mandate it. Many parents go back to work, as Meryl said, putting their babies in daycare much earlier than they'd like because they can't afford to be staying at home, not getting paid. Why do we lag behind most nations in the world when it comes to paid leave? We're going to hear what Canada does. That's coming up after the break. This is where we live. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Election Day, November 8th, is just around the corner, which means Connecticut voter, voters will soon choose between two candidates for U.S. Senate. There's Republican Dan Carter and Democratic incumbent Richard Blumenthal. On the next Where We Live, Carter stopped by last month for an in-depth look at his campaign. Now it's Senator Blumenthal's turn to answer your questions. You can join the conversation that's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Today we're focusing on child care here in Connecticut and nationwide. Oftentimes, parents are forced to put their kids in daycare a lot sooner than they'd like because taking family leave for the birth of a child is limited, especially for dads, depending on where you work, and the U.S. lags behind every developed nation when it comes to offering paid leave. Actually, the U.S., Suriname, Tonga, and Papua New Guinea are the only places without paid leave. How did we get to this point? Bridget Schulte is a journalist and lead author of the Care Index, director of the Better Life Lab and the Good Life Initiative at New America. She's um, joining us from the studios in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, many Americans are dissatisfied with our presidential candidates this election season, so much so that we hear people joking or half joking about moving to Canada. Canada offers paid leave, so we wanted to find out how our friendly northern neighbor got to this point. So joining us on the phone is Martha Friendly, executive director of the Child Care Resource and Research Unit in Toronto. Martha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. So tell us about paid leave in Canada. How much do parents get? Well, for one thing, we've had maternity leave since, paid maternity leave since 1971. So it's, it's, it's been um, upgraded a number of times. And right now in Canada, um, outside of Quebec, it's about a year. Um, and it's paid at a relative, up to 55% of wages up to a ceiling. Um, Quebec has a, its own program, which is considerably better. And ironically, right now, right now there's a, a federal consultation on how to improve the program. So, so many parents, most parents, um, are able to take a, at least a partially paid year. That, I mean, if you sort of, I mean, that would be the average, and it's commonly taken. Um, it's 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 far from perfect, but it's it's solidly in place. And um, any discussion in uh, Canada right now about um, making changes to this yes. policy? It was, it was an election commitment um, in the federal election, which was about a year ago, to make it uh, more flexible to support families better. So if you look at our leave and you compare it to European leaves, um, European leaves, um, the, the duration is usually about a year. It varies um, in how much is for the mother and how much is for both parents, and then whether there's earmarked leave for fathers, um, which is one of the things that Canada lacks. So there's discussion about um, um, putting, putting that in place for across Canada. Quebec already has earmarked leave for parents for five weeks paid. Um, the other thing is that we believe, and many people believe, the, um, there's too many people who are excluded from it who aren't eligible, so they don't have enough. It's, it's under employment insurance, so you have to have 600 um, hours of paid work in the previous year. Um, and that's too, um, it's, it, it, it excludes a lot of people like precarious workers. There's no provision except in Quebec for self-employed people, which is a growing category of people, or for students. Um, there's some discussion about making it more flexible. And I think one of the major issues, and to me this is one of the major issues, um, is there's a whole range of equity issues. So there's a whole issue of um, equity between men and women. And you know, many people believe that we really need to include, uh, to encourage fathers to take much more leave by paying it better and essentially by having a use it or lose it kind of provision. But, we, but research um, does show that low-income um, 
parents are less likely to, to take it, probably because their work conditions don't allow it and also because it pays too low to allow, for example, a single mother to take it. That's another kind of equity issue. And then there's a whole other like kind of sub-issues. So I think the point is, is that we've had a, a, a rudimentary program in place since 1971. Um, it's grown three times since then, or it's been added to, and I think we're at the point where we're going to have another national discussion about it. And by the way, I, I think you're, the way you're framing this is that it's part and parcel of the discussion about child care, that it's kind of the, the, uh, the flip side, the, you know, the other piece of it, I think is a really important discussion. So I want to turn back to, to Bridget, who's in Washington, D.C., Bridget Schulte, a journalist, lead author of the Care Index. You know, Bridget, uh, we just heard Martha say that, can, that Canada's had the paid leave since 1970. Uh, we've heard our candidates mention it at some point in the campaign a long time ago. I mean, where is the, the pressure to get this kind of policy when we know so many parents out there? And it's not just for people having kids, right? Paid leave would help if, say, you, you need to take time off um, and you have to be a caregiver for an elderly parent. Exactly, exactly. That's one of the things. Um, the, what we have in this country is unpaid family and medical leave. Um, and that took 10 years to pass. It was vetoed by the first uh, uh, President Bush several times. And it was the it was the first piece of legislation that then President Bill Clinton, Clinton signed into office in the early 90s. Uh, it's unpaid. It's 12 weeks. Uh, you have to be a full-time worker. It, it applies only uh, to people who work in firms with more than 50 people. Um, and, uh, and, and it doesn't cover 40% of the workforce. So it's a really... It's it's a really crummy law, and it's the only thing that we have that supports families. And it's and it was still so difficult to pass. You had uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and many business communities saying it's a job killer. It's just going to be terrible. Um, and so then, what's what happened is people started to turn their attention to the states and tried to pass uh, state paid family leave programs. And California was one of the very first back in the early 2000s. And there have been a number of studies since then looking at well, what was the impact because businesses were worried and they said this is this is terrible you can't mandate this is another you know regulation it'll be a job killer uh, and what's really happened uh, it's fascinating that it you know there was the, the ceiling did not fall the sky did not fall uh, what they actually found was that uh, most businesses said it either had a neutral or positive effect because you had more productivity you had higher morale for low-wage workers uh, what they found is that there were um, much more return to the workforce rather than falling into, say, um, you know, leaving the workforce and, and then requiring uh, public assistance. So it actually helped family stability. Uh, you know, it actually had health effects. There was less depression, which you can imagine. You have to go back to work, you know, one in four, go back to work within two weeks. That's a pretty depressing statistic. So it helped with depression rates. It, uh, it uh, increased breastfeeding, which then helped the health and immune system of the child. So that there were a number of positive positive, you know, societal health as well as business effects. Uh, and yet uh, very few states, we've got uh, now Rhode Island um, uh, and New Jersey have paid uh, family leave. New York has just passed probably one of the most uh, progressive uh, paid family leaves. But these are very small programs in, in just a handful of states. And when you ask why, it really goes back to 1971. In the early 1970s, that's when a number of countries around the world were seeing uh, that the world was changing, that women were entering the marketplace, uh, both because they had to, 
uh, wages had started to stagnate and for a lot of low-wage workers, you needed that second income just to keep your same standard of living. And then also the women's movement opened up opportunities, uh, you know, and then you had more women who, who wanted to have families but also wanted to have a role in, uh, you know, in the public life, uh, uh, you know, in paid work. Uh, and so a number of, of countries around the world sort of saw that happening and responded to it with uh, paid family leave, with um, high-quality subsidized child care. Um, uh, and the United States, again, started down that road with uh, a bipartisan bill. It had Republicans and Democratic co-sponsors, uh, and it passed both House and, House and Senate. So there was widespread support. If you look at Harris and Gallup polls at the time, there was widespread support among the population saying this is something we need to do. Uh, and it was really, um, it was Pat Buchanan who was working in the Nixon White House at the time. Uh, I interviewed him for a book that I wrote uh, looking at uh, why are we at the bottom of the barrel in so many family policies. And it was really that moment uh, when Pat Buchanan, he had come back from a trip to the Soviet Union. He was very freaked out by all these young pioneers marching around and spouting Leninist doctrine, and that's what he thought childcare was. And he said, you know, in America, uh, mom is home with cake and pie at 3 o'clock when the kids come home from school. That's the American way. And so he convinced Richard Nixon to veto the bill, and then Pat Buchanan wrote the veto language where he made it very clear that any kind of paid family leave or child care was sort of a a akin to this kind of communist, socialist kind of agenda. And really, when I spoke with Pat Buchanan, he said he he, he not only wanted to kill the bill in the 1970s, he wanted to kill the very idea of child care. And I would argue that it, it worked because we've never talked about it until just this presidential election in 2016. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And I think there is one more presidential debate uh, before Election Day. So maybe we'll hear a little bit more about uh, the importance of paid leave and better child care options for American families. Thank you so much, Bridget Schulte, journalist and lead author of the Care Index. Also on the phone with us, Martha Friendly, Executive Director of the Child Care Resource and Research Unit in Toronto. Thank you. And Meryl Gay, Executive Director of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. We can continue the conversation on Facebook, on Twitter. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today.